0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk.
1: Great. I, I'm going to show you three images, and I want you to have a very quick um, think about what might these three images have in common. These three images. Any guesses? They're on television. Um, not quite, not quite. Um, there's the Spice Girls. There's Dad's Army. They did a song, didn't they? Uh huh. Oh, you on the right lines? Yeah. There's a big clue on the screen. Well, to yeah, be I fair. Yeah. So Spice Girls um, in 1997 released their song "Who Do You Think You Are?" Um, and 2004, BBC launched its uh, TV show on Family History, also called "Who Do You Think You Are?" and uh, what's the first few words of the Dad's Army theme tune? Who do you think you are? See? <laughs> See? Um, and that's the question I want us to consider um, this evening. It was a bit of a stretch, but we had to begin somewhere. Um, who do you think you are? That's what I want us to think about this evening. Who do you think you are? Who do we think we are? And actually... Who do we see our identity as? How do we understand ourselves? What do we think our purpose is? Do we understand our own character, our own temperaments and inclinations? Now, I have I slightly fudged the the Dad's army one because there's an extra word on on the end um, of, of that first bit, which is who do you think you are kidding? I think often we can be uh, can even deceive ourselves. I think we can put out this image of who we are, this, this idealised version of who we are, and we start believing it ourselves. Now, um, often we see Old Testament narratives like Esther as windows into ancient cultures. But can I also suggest that they serve as mirrors through which we can look at ourselves through, but from perhaps a slightly different and useful perspective. It is my hope that the Holy Spirit this evening will be at work in us and through us as we think a bit more about who we think we are, but also who God thinks we are. Now, um, you may or may not have been here... um, for the rest of the, the series, um, this might be your first one. You might dip in and out. Um, the one thing that I, I I will recap where we're up to so far. But one of the things that um, could rightly be applied to the story of Esther so far are the East Enders doof doofs. When I say that, does anyone know what I mean? Know the end of an episode, there's some dramatic reveal or cliffhanger, and it goes doof 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 doof. Yeah, yeah, it's all kind of the penny dropping now. Yeah, yeah. Esther is full of the duff-duffs. And, and I really appreciate how the, the series has been broken up to kind of maintain these duff duffs. And I'm very glad that the, the preachers haven't kind of strayed into revealing anything that's coming next, kind of preserving those cliffhanger moments. Um, so before we dive into what we're looking at, can we just recap the, some of the duff-duffs that we've had um, so far, or some the drama that we've had. So, chapter one, um, we're, we're in this Persian court um, of King Xerxes holding lavish celebrations, but um, Queen Vashti, his queen at the time, um, refuses the king summons, so she's gone, she's deposed. Um, chapter two, um, uh, there's a nationwide search for uh, Vashti's replacement, um, beauty contest read industrial-scale state-sponsored exploitation and abuse of women, um, and it concludes, though, with Esther being made queen, um, and as a side point in that chapter, Esther's cousin Mordecai um, foils a plot to assassinate the king. Chapter three, we are introduced um, to the character Haman. Um, he is the most powerful official in the king's court, um, and he's is also an ancestral enemy of the Jewish people. Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. Haman doesn't like that, so convinces the king to issue a decree to destroy all of the Jews. You might have thought that um, Haman is the bad guy in the Book of Esther. Chapter 4. Mordecai learns of his people's fate and he persuades his cousin Queen Esther to put her life on the line uh, to appeal to the king, and the Jewish people fast in preparation. And then the first half of chapter 5. Thankfully, the king looks on Esther favourably, grants her permission to be even in his presence. Um, So she hosts the king and Haman at a banquet, and she promises to reveal what her big request is the following day at another banquet. Now, we are um, jumping in right after that first banquet. So I want to invite Nick now to uh, come and read um, our passage. I warn you, it spans three chapters, That sounds longer than it is, but it's still not short either, but it's God's word, it's good, and we're going to go through it together.
0: Okay, if you want to follow, we're going to start at Esther chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 9. It's going to be on the screen as well as um, hearing me read it, and if you're following yourself, then, then please do that. So here's the story. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honoured him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Heyman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honour and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Now, Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honour than me? So he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honour, let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He rode to Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisers and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, "'Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, "'is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. "'You will surely come to ruin.' While they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet." Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy. This vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realising that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banqueting hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. And he had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai then the king's fury subsided.
1: Oh, juicy. Um, juicy drama there. Oh, plot twists and poetic justice. and oh, I feel I ought to mention that I don't regularly or ever watch EastEnders. I so don't always get the wrong idea. Um, right, if you do, I don't. But they're just iconic. Um, And we've had plenty more justice in our passage. And I think it's uh, uh, safe to say that we are in the crescendo of the book of Esther. Um, And the dramatic pace here of the whole book, but particularly here, is vital for us in understanding what's going on. So I did a history degree, so I really want you to bear with me as I just inflict on you um, a timeline... Um, but I think it's, 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 quite, it's quite helpful. Um, you, you'll notice that we, we join um, the, the action of the Book of Esther in year three of King Xerxes' reign. Um, that's when there was that first banquet and fasci and so on. Um, and then um, we jump a few, forward a few years. That's when we we're introduced to Esther. A year later, that's when she's introduced to the king. And then a few years later is when we, we're in the action that we're looking at now, so if I move on slightly, I've just put on the, on the slide kind of where the chapters are. The first couple of chapters of the book of Esther, they're dealing with year spans. The bit that we're looking at, chapters are zoning in onto the hours of a day. We're really kind of drilling down into what each character is doing. Where are they going? Who are they talking to? we are really drilling in to the detail. So here's a, another timeline, the last one, I promise. Um, and you can kind of just see these, um, the three days of fasting that the, the, the Jews did a few chapters ago. The day, there's a lot happens on day three. That's when the fasting finishes. Esther goes uh, to the king. That's um, when she has the first banquet with the king. And that's where we join the action, with Haman kind of on his way back from that banquet. Mordecai doesn't bow to him. And that, uh, yeah, that's kind of where, where we're joined and the rest of the action happens on that last day. So we're really getting close to the action, really zooming in. And actually it's, because it's so intricate, because we're so detailed and because our passage is quite long, I want us to, to just focus, draw out just a few things. I want us to look at the characters, four of the people that we meet um, in our passage. And I want to look at them because they really richly contrast with each other. And I think as we look at each of these four people, I hope that we catch some glimpses of ourselves across um, our our set of people. Some aspects of ourselves which I hope you will find useful, challenging, encouraging. Um, So we're going to be looking at um, Haman first, then Esther, then Mordecai, and then um, Zeresh. Who do you think you are? Um, a few weeks ago, um, I was speaking to a, a Jewish student. I work at the university um, on campus. Uh, and I asked her to describe the book of Esther from her perspective, from, um, from the Jewish faith. And she had one word for me, and that was hidden. God, his presence, his purpose, his promise, is hidden in Esther. Esther. It's there, it's very much there, but it is hidden. So, as we delve into just a few of these characters, just a few of the things that are going on, let's see if we can uncover something of God, as well as thinking about who do we think we are. Right, character one, Haman. Um... I think he's perhaps one of the most straightforward baddies that we've got in the Bible. It's pretty hard to come back from plotting the elimination of an entire race, let alone God's own people. But Haman is presented as a character with with depth, with emotions. We actually get a look in and we get to eavesdrop on him talking with his nearest and dearest, with his family and friends. So let's just look at things um, from Haman's perspective. He's recently been honoured by the king. He's one of the most important people in the land. Um, so much so that he's able to just order the destruction of a whole entire people just because someone didn't bow down to him. He's, he's that powerful. He's that powerful. And he's just been treated to an exclusive banquet, an exclusive audience with the king and queen. How would you be feeling if that was you? But you were that powerful, you had it that together, you'd probably be in cloud nine. Not Haman. Chapter 5, verse 9. He was filled with rage. Really? What was he to be mad about? Simply because one person didn't bow down to him. One person didn't acknowledge his status. And that ruined everything for Haman. He has placed all of his self-worth on his status. And that's left him highly insecure single person not acknowledging that status was enough to bring it all tumbling down for him. This gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Verse 13 of chapter 5. He is consumed with rage because of his pride and his narcissism. So while we might not be plotting the destruction of entire races of people, I wonder whether there is something in almost that psychology of Haman that rings true for us. When do we let those small slights, those small snubs, those little hiccups in life, do those get in our way? Do those cloud out the good? Do those dominate? Who do we think we are? Now how does Haman deal with this slight? He calls his uh, friends together and, and, and his wife and he boasts about his wealth, his dynasty, his honours, his power. These are things that his, his, surely his, his wife knows how many children he's got and surely his friends kind of know, know what he's all about. So what, what's, what's he doing there? Well, I think I can tell you because I do this thing too. When I'm uh, upset, when I get knocked back, I invite my friends um, to me and I trot out my achievements and I will spin a tale that will make me the victim of the scenario. Who do I think I am? I, when I do that, when we do that, when we are holding on to our achievements to make up for when things go wrong, I think that shows something of insecurity in, in who we are, so that 's bad in itself, but I think uh, that makes me wince because I see what 's happening next for Haman. We see just this heady mix of irony and poetic justice and hubris. So Morde- so the, his big fuss over Mordecai's snug is just going to kill him. Just highlights how oblivious they are to their impending fate. They're just so oblivious. Even as he makes his way to the king to ask for him to be killed, he inadvertently talks himself into giving Mordecai the honours that he only dreamed of. And to top it off, he's executed on his own pole, and he's executed for a crime he didn't actually commit. Now, that makes me worried. His life kind of went on a big downwards trend and he he was just not in control of it. And that makes me worried for me. It's that pole that makes me worried for me. That pole makes me think of another wooden construction that was used for execution. And I'm not... The only one who's kind of drawn that parallel. If you look at art, um, right, Christian history of, uh, of the execution, you often see it depicted as a cross rather than a pole. But am I executed on a pole like Haman? No. The answer is no. God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think of that pole because I'm aware of my own sin, but I think of that pole because I remember what Christ has done for me. Medieval artists drew that connection to remind us that even, no matter how bad the sin, Christ died. Death has covered it, so who do I think I am? a sinner, yeah, enemy of God been there, flawed human being daily, but also a forgiven, beloved, and reconciled child of God so if you like me um, see something of you in Haman's story. See it as a warning, but also see it as an invitation. An invitation to come to the cross, to come back to God. Character two, Esther. Great contrast between Haman and Esther. Both are really prominent in the story and they're both really prominent in the court of King Xerxes. Both have degrees of agency, degrees of influence. Both have shown fear before the king. Esther a few chapters ago when she was made uh, the first approach and now Haman when he sees what's uh, about to, to come on him. Now let's look at Esther. She bided her time we have had to go through a few chapters of Esther putting herself out there, orchestrating um, approaches and banquets and another banquet. She's bided her time. She's put her life at risk and her trust in God, not just once, but moment after moment after moment in this saga. And she's chosen her moment, finally, and it's paid off. In this whole series of interactions, she didn't go in all guns blazing and blurting out her request straight away. No. She waited for the right moment. She shows a mastery of the court etiquette, but also political instincts. If you look at the the, the language that she, she's used in, in our in our passage, that she's very deferential. She's saying, if we were sold, being been sold into slavery, that's no problem, we won't bother you with that. But we've been sold into death. She's been really clever in persuading and convincing the king of her cause. Now a few weeks ago, Meghan gave a powerful and anointed commentary of Esther's entry into the court of King Xerxes. She explained to us that counter to what is commonly thought and commonly taught about Esther, her beauty wasn't Her finest attributes. It was the prime for which she was exploited. And I think it's within uh, the chapters that we've seen and, and in the last few weeks that we actually see what makes Esther remarkable. It's her wisdom and her cunning in her planning, it's her humility and her faithfulness in her preparation. And it's her bravery and her patience in executing her plan. Wow, what an incredible woman. What training had she had for this? She was an exile, an orphan, a captive, an abuse survivor, and now a target of persecution. Who do we think we are? what trials have we faced or are facing? If, like Esther, you're facing some pretty hard things, trial after trial, being absolutely buffeted by the storms of life, why not follow Esther's lead? Keep going in faith. In faith that God will remain faithful to you but not only that. Has God placed you where you are for such a time as this? Who else is in your darkness that you can shine a light for? Who else is in the storm you're caught up in that you can share your lifeboat with? What hope can you share with authenticity because your life is hard too now notice that Haman's life was plain sailing and it was of his own making but because it was of his own making that he wasn't able to hold it together for the long term when things weren't going his way Esther's the opposite For most of her life, things had been out of her control. She didn't choose where she was born. She didn't choose to have her parents die on her. She didn't choose to be um, brought before the king and selected as queen. Her life was far, far harder, not of her making. She didn't try and keep it together, hold it together by herself. She entrusted herself, her very life, to God. He carries her through. Who do we think we are? Now I want to take um, our third and fourth characters kind of together, Mordecai and Zeresh. Now we could spent all time just looking at Haman and Esther. They're big characters with a lot to delve into. But they also had support acts. They had their families. There's uh, Esther's cousin, Mordecai, and Haman's wife, Zeresh. But Mordecai and Zeresh couldn't be more different. Now, if I say the word, and I'm, I'm, excuse my pronunciation here, en Villard, to you, would you know what I mean? Anyone? Any architects in the room? Any, anyone from the Baroque period in the room? No? It sounds like something to do with need. It might be, but that's not the definition I've got in in my mind. Um, uh, I don't actually know what the word means, uh, literally, but I do know um, what it is. In Baroque palaces and stately homes, um, you you may well have been to to one, um, like there's often the state apartments are are arranged in a series of rooms in an enfilade which is essentially that you start with the biggest most important room like a great hall something like that and then some people are allowed into the next room which is slightly smaller slightly more intimate and it goes further further down a corridor much like that each is a, is a new room um all the way till you get to like the state bedchamber. and if you're if you're super close with the important person with the king or the duke or whoever you're allowed there and the more important you were, the further along the the series of rooms you're allowed to go in. It was actually people's job to stand on the doors like bouncers, to say, no, you can go this far but not not further. And that's where um, uh, this practice isn't just unique to the Baroque period, it it happened before, it happened after, and, and it's this kind of practice that we talk about rank and status. We talk about it in terms of position and to know your place. Literally, you need to know your place, where you're allowed to go. Status um, in these times is lived out through space. Power is exhibited through place. Now, uh, the Palace of Susa, where most of our action is is happening, is uh, and, and was a real place. Now, I'm going to put on the. Sorry, I'm a historian again. Um, oh. Um, some more history stuff. Um, on the top there, we've got a, a Google Earth view of the, the actual location, right, well, not right now, but recently, of the ruins of um, the Palace of Sousa. And then there's like a map and an artist impression there. Um, it was a real place, a real place. And you can see that the zoning, the different courtyards, the, how important you were, depends on how, which courtyard you could go to. so so important, so embedded into the architecture, that that still survived. Now, you can can kind of see there's the the city square, then there's the king's gate, then there's the palace complex, the, the citadel, the third, second and inner court, then the throne room, each getting more and more exclusive, each more and more important. Now, we've already seen in the story of Esther how status has been reinforced by this zoning of the royal palace. Um, If you remember in in chapter 4, if you were here, verse 11, any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, uh, the king has but one law that they be put to death unless the king extends his gold scepter to them and spares his lives. We've seen that already. And even in our... our, um, uh, in our passage, we see that Haman's just rocked up at the palace and he's already on the, in the outer court. He's not been invited. The king doesn't know he's there. He's not asked for him, but he's already just rocked up at the palace. He's that powerful. He can just rock up. So, we know that Esther lives within the palace and that Haman comes and goes as he pleases. But what about Mordecai? Where's Mordecai? Where does he, where's he hang out? He um, pretty much exclusively sits... Um, in and around the king's gate. And I've kind of highlighted that on each of the three images just so you can kind of get your bearings. That's where he is. That is as far as he is allowed to go. um, Chapter 6, verse 10, we see that he's got a reputation. He's like Mordecai, the king's gate Jew guy. That's like literally kind of how he's being referred to. And we can see that that he's been located at the king's gate in chapter 2 and chapter three and chapter five and chapter six that's where he is the only time when he wasn't at the king's gate was in chapter four and that's when he was all sad because um, in sackcloth because he'd heard the news um, of his people's um, impending destruction so he was wearing sackcloth and he wasn't allowed to go to the king's gate but he got as close as he could now Susa um, was in two parts Um, it was the city proper then there's also the citadel. That's this bit where the palace is. Now, Mordecai has is, is got as close to the citadel. He's, he's just on the edge of it. That's the closest he's possibly able to get to Esther. Now, that's where Mordecai start, is starting in our passage. They neither rose nor showed fear in Haman's presence. He's sticking to his guns. He's, not, he's been sat at this gate from the beginning of the Book of Esther, and from his first interaction with Haman, he has not bowed down. Even now, he's not bowing down, sticking to his guns. But in a remarkable and probably divinely orchestrated way, we see that Haman has, is now instructed to honour Mordecai with royal robes, a royal horse, and a royal possession around the city. This was perhaps the highest possible honour being treated like the king himself. Now, if we look um, at this one, you can kind of get a sense of how the citadel and the city interacted with each other. The palace and the citadel were on one little mound, joined to the rest of the city by this bridge. And again, I've highlighted where the king's gate is. Now, you can imagine that Mordecai gets picked up At the gate by the royal procession, he gets processed round the city, goes back across that bridge to the king's gate. You would think it would be the natural trajectory of things for them to keep going and to deposit Mordecai in some of the courts and inside the palace because, well, if he's been paraded around like a king, he probably ought to be with the king. But no, verse 12 of chapter 6 says, afterwards, after this big royal procession in his honour, Mordecai returns to the king's gate. He's returned to where he belongs. And what does this tell us about Mordecai? He's not dazzled by fame or wealth or status. He is focused on the task at hand. He is showing humility and steadfastness. He's holding on to whatever wealth, whatever privileges, lightly. Now, let's compare him with um, Zeresh. At the mere indication that her husband was snubbed, just snubbed, by a relative nobody, it is her suggestion to have Mordecai killed. Chapter 5, verse 14. And it's her suggestion to use Haman's proximity to the king to exploit royal power for personal gain. And it was her suggestion how this killing was to take place. A 23-metre-high pole. And that's two telegraph poles high. I think one probably would have done the job, but no. This is to project power, status, intimidation. Like, do want to stamp out anyone challenging their authority. While Mordecai holds onto status lightly, Suresh grips it tightly and will do anything to preserve it. Mordecai is selfless, Zeresh selfish. Mordecai willing to make sacrifices, Zeresh resorts to scheming. Who do we think we are? Do we cling to our reputation, our resources, our time? Do we fight off challenges to our status? Do we grip things tightly or lightly? Are we more concerned with our purpose or our possessions? Now, for us, I, I hope that we know that, we, that our status isn't found in what we hold on to here, but who is holding on to us for uh, so that is something that no one can take away from us. So anything we hold on to now we can just let go of because it's of no importance or significance truly. And let's think again about that image of space and status and who has access to who. Can I share with you Hebrews 4 um, verse Verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, we are permitted to approach God's throne with confidence. That's why we don't need to worry if our reputation is challenged, when our resources are dwindling, when people are trying to kind of pull wool over our eyes or bow mouth us, whatever it might be. We don't need to worry too much about that because before the throne of God, we find all the help that we need in our time of need. We find everything there. We don't need to hold on to it. God provides it. Who do we think we are? Now we've uh, talked about how God is hidden in the book of Esther. The perfect coincidental timings throughout. The God incidences, Or what John Goldingay calls the crucial coincidences. These are examples of the hidden God at work. It was that night that the king couldn't sleep. So he asked for something to be read to him to put him to sleep. It was that part of the chronicles that recalls Mordecai's past actions. It was that moment that Haman entered the court, so he could um, ask the king to um, so the king asked him to honour Mordecai. And God's hidden activity didn't go unnoticed at the time. Zeresh says to Haman, "Since Mordecai." Before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him, you will surely come to ruin. Even they um, knew that the Jewish people, the people of God, had some special supernatural protection. King Frederick the Great of Prussia once asked um, the people around him for proof of the existence of God. And the answer that was given to him was the continued existence of the Jews. God protects his people. He looks out for them. We see that throughout scripture. And I think we can see that in history. And it's this fact that has given Esther confidence, Mordecai hope, and Zeresh fear. So, who do we think we are? Do we see something of the insecurity and selfishness of Haman in us? Do we see something of Esther's resilience and reliance on God through trials in us? Do we see something of Mordecai's humility and steadfastness in us? Do we see something of Zeresh, Zeresh's ruthlessness in us? Do we see something of God's hidden activity in and through us? Can I encourage you to consider this question this week? Maybe revisit we it from time to time going forwards. Who do I think I am? Now, I'm going to invite Toby. Um, to, to come up and join me because Toby has been reflecting on who he thinks he is.